Hi everyone, welcome to the Sacred Musings podcast with me, Phil Saker. It's the 23rd of November, 23. It is episode 108, and today we are looking at why Western foreign policy is a disaster. So welcome to the podcast today, everyone. Uh, you know, I've been thinking a lot over the last few months about, you know, particularly what you know kicked off with everything that's been happening with Israel in uh, Palestine. But I've been thinking a lot about, you know, foreign policy, I suppose, how we relate to other nations and how so often we in the Western world get it wrong. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about that and we're particularly thinking today about the USA because I, I do think that, you know, USA foreign policy is to some extent, you know, dominant across the, the rest of the Western world. So what the what the USA does, the rest of the Western world kind of follows. Um, so we're going to be looking at that anyway, uh, coming up in the main section of the podcast. But before we get to that, as always, I've got a few um, articles and things to share with you. Things that I've seen this week, things which people have sent to me, which I found helpful. Um, so, uh, yeah, the first thing is, well, actually, there are two articles here from the uh, Midwestern Doctor. Now, I, I think I may have shared articles from a Midwestern Doctor before, uh, the Substack, uh, it's Midwestern Doctor, but it's called The Forgotten Side of Medicine. Uh, but he's written a couple of articles this week. I, I presume it's a he. I think it's a he. Um, which have been written about um, a couple of different topics. But yeah, there are two articles that he's written this week. Uh, so one is called What Were the Economic Consequences of the Unjustifiable COVID Lockdowns? Uh, subtitle exploring the decades of you will own nothing and be happy this is published on november the 17th and i thought this was a really interesting article looking at how the the elites over the last you know 50 or so years the elites you know although we do technically live in a democracy there has been an intentional push to transfer more power to the elites and partly that's been done by you know kind of creating these economic enslavement basically to make people dependent on the the elites to make people dependent on the government and that has been intentional and he he looks at uh, some of the history uh, looks at the the trilateral commission which is something that i didn't really know very much about um and um you know how how this was kind of um ideas that were around back in the, I think the, the 1960s and 70s have kind of led piece by piece to what's happened through through Covid and how it has been to a greater or lesser extent intentional and that's something that I have you know come to I suppose uh, uh, reluctantly you know that's one of the ways that I've changed over the last um, two or three years which is I, I've just started out thinking that you know covid was just well it was a bunch of weak people making weak and terrible decisions um and i think i've more and more come to the come to the understanding that it was intentional but i'll come back to that in a moment okay the next article uh, why does the government cover up vaccine injuries also by the uh, midwestern doctor subtitle reviewing a century of vaccine disasters and the early trailblazers who fought against them. And he looks at several examples through the latter part of the 20th century, well, actually, including some, some of the earlier parts of the 20th century, and how vaccine problems, you know, vaccine injuries, and, you know, problems with vaccines were, were dealt with, and how, as the power of Big Pharma has grown, so the media have been less and less interested in actually investigating these vaccine injuries because prior to prior to to covid you know these things were exposed eventually in the media and turned people against them turned people against uh, getting those vaccines and there have been several examples of this um the polio vaccine was one and i think i might have mentioned this before i've, I've seen it mentioned but you know that there were a lot of it actually gave a lot this back in the 1950s it gave children polio um at, there was a couple of, of 
vaccines produced by different manufacturers, which just really didn't work, actually created more harm, um, and so on and so forth. So, you know, it looks at some of the examples. I thought that was a helpful read as well, just looking at how the, the big pharma sort of industrial complex creates censorship and, you know, puts pressure on, on the media to um, not, you know, to give them a free pass, basically. Okay, the next thing I wanted to mention is just a short clip. This is a short clip from Nick Hudson from Panda. I think it's a podcast interview with um, Ahmad Malik. And um, it talks about how it was a pandemic. Um, now, going back to what I was saying earlier about how this was, you know, um, uh, this is how my opinion has changed. You know, what, what Nick Hudson basically points out is the, the timeline of what happened at the beginning. So he says, you know, uh, a certain date, you know, this new virus of, of interest was noted. And he said, you know, that's quite quite unusual because there are lots of types of um, new, um, oh, um, pneumonia, lots of time in China, you know, circulating at that time. So how could a new one sort of be identified like this? And, you know, it, it just, the time, and then they developed the PCR test and, you know, it all happened within the space of about um, 20 or 30 days. And uh, when you put all of that together, it's pretty suspicious, really, isn't it? If you think about it, that the speed at which things happened. And I know that I've read articles on the Daily Skeptic before saying that the US um, special you know, intelligence services had their eye on a notable virus in China. Uh, I think from or late uh, sort of autumn 2019. So what was going on? You know, there are definitely things there which we are not being told. So um, yeah, let's uh, move on to the next thing. This is from News Uncut, published uh, November the 21st, saying Hancock has the blood of thousands on his hands. Subtitle, former health secretary's deadly COVID protocol slammed by doctors in 2020, but was implemented anyway. So this is the the news that, uh, or well not news, but you know what happened in 2020 is that Matt Hancock implemented what was basically the Liverpool pathway, which is kind of end of life palliative care, but it is it is effectively euthanasia you know, causing people to die by, by the drugs that you give them, by morphine and uh, midazolam uh, and what have you. And there were a lot of doctors, I think 20 or so doctors, senior doctors, who wrote to the British Medical Journal, to the BMJ, back in 2020, expressing their, um, I say reservations is, is not, not, uh, not a strong enough word, actually, but about what was, what was happening and by the administering of these drugs to to patients and um, they were not listened to you know they were not listened to so yeah do have a look at that article as well but you know it does seem that what Matt Hancock did the decisions that Matt Hancock made to reintroduce this sort of pathway caused people to die who didn't need to die and that's something, of course, which the COVID inquiry is not, I'm sure, will not pick up on at all. Um, it's disgraceful. Um, but that's, that's yeah, it's important to be informed and to, to know what, what, what happened. So I do have a look at that. OK, um, uh, three more things here. So I've got um, another uh, interview this uh, with um, Efrat Fenixen, Um and she interviewed uh, Dr. Peter St. Ong. Ong? Ong? Um, anyway, uh, he is a sort of um, financial economic uh, specialist and he was talking about the problems with fiat money, you know, all of that at the moment. And um, it was quite similar actually to what I mentioned a few uh, weeks ago looking at money. But I think that, um, yeah, this was a helpful interview. One of the th things I thought was interesting about him was how he does seem to be quite pro uh, Bitcoin. And he said, actually, that Bitcoin was preferable to gold. And, you know, he said that, that they, they discover or, you know, they, they excavate, or, you know, whatever, a quarry, a certain amount of gold per year. So that in gold, sort of the inflation of gold is pretty 
constant. And he said that Bitcoin is, you know, um, that the actual inflation was set to, to decrease next year. It had been matching gold, but it was set to decrease. But he thought that Bitcoin was, you know, better than gold in, in that respect. As I was saying a few a few weeks ago, it's because there is a finite amount of it. You know, governments can't just create more gold or create more Bitcoin. Um, but, you know, I think because of the security of Bitcoin, he was, you know, he was very pro uh, and talked about how it was, you know, very secure, very, you know, good like that. So I do have a look at that interview if you're interested in the financial uh, side of things. And he talks about the, the coming sort of financial crash and, um, and what have you. So, yeah, do have a look. Um, oh, so now completely moving, moving, changing subjects now. Um, there was a clip here on Twitter uh, from um, uh, the Channel 4 documentary where different sort of celebrities go into, go into prison. And this particular example was Peter Hitchens. There was an episode where Peter Hitchens went in and talked to some of the, um, the inmates. And there was just a, a sort of six or seven minute clip um, of Peter Hitchens with... Tom, it says labelled at 11 at Britain's naughtiest schoolboy. And um, I just thought it was really moving, actually. I know that Peter Hitchens, I I like Peter Hitchens, as, as you know, and I think uh, I remember I was watching um, the in interview on Trigonometry with um, Matt Goodwin the other day and uh, Matt Goodwin was saying you know the last few years have just been has just been an exercise in realizing that Peter Hitchens was right about everything <laughs> um but you know Peter Hitchens is a is a you know he's a man of integrity he he was you know, reading his bible in in there he was reading his book of common prayer he was reading it to um to this young boy Tom and you know the, the relationship between them the and the way that Peter Hitchens really cared you know, it wasn't kind of virtue signaling care it wasn't he wasn't concerned about his own appearance but he really cared about them and it showed and you know this young young boy you know young man i should say tom you know he was really interested in the bible he you know wanted peter to read it to him and and so on and um yeah i, I just thought it was you know it was really moving actually to watch and just thinking you know that's what really makes a difference in our society you know is actually genuine love and care for people and actually caring them caring about them enough you know to bring them what they need in their hour of need you know particularly in in the bible and um yeah i, I just thought that was a really a lovely thing to watch um the final thing is an article from the critic which is published yesterday um and this is uh, this is the, it's the 60th anniversary of the death of C.S. Lewis. Uh, he died on the same day, apparently, as Aldous Huxley and JFK. Um, so they all died on the same day, on the 22nd of November 1963. Um, and what this article was pointing out, uh, who is it written by? It's written by Rhys Laverty was pointing out that um, Lewis uh, is, you know, the other two are kind of hailed as prophets or, you know, secular prophets. But Lewis isn't really, kind of seems dated now, you know, that he, he said that that's the way, that's the perception. It's just a bit too Christian and, you know, and what have you. But actually, I think what he said uh, was, you know, C.S. Lewis was prophetic and, and I've spoken about, this, spoken about him on the podcast before that he saw things which um he saw things which other people couldn't at the time let me just read you one quote from the article <clears throat> at the close of the second world war lewis was one of a number of christian intellectuals alongside jack maritain simone weil wh uh, Auden, and t.s Eliot, who had begun to consider what world the allied powers would now make for themselves Lewis saw a future in which the rejection of transcendent values would allow a technologized elite to remake nature as they saw fit, ultimately overthrowing human nature itself, 
a process made possible through the ideological capture of education. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Would enable an elite to rule by technology through the ideological capture of education. Well, look, here we are 60 years later and uh, what is happening? Um, so, yeah, fascinating. Uh, but the article itself mentions a couple, particularly mentions a couple of books which uh, Lewis wrote. One was That Hideous Strength, which is a, one of his sci-fi novels. Uh, he wrote three sci-fi novels. That Hideous Strength was the third one. And he talks about these ideas and um, The Abolition of Man, which is lectures that he gave on that, that subject. And I've actually ordered both of those books. I, you know, as you know, those regulars to the podcast. I love Lewis and I think he was uh, prophetic and insightful, but I, I, I haven't read everything that he wrote and I, I feel like I need to, you know, um, to go. So so expect something on that in due course anyway, uh, once I've finished uh, the current things I need to read. <laughs> um, so there we go. That's all that I have for today. Do let me know if there are any um, articles, anything that you found helpful, anything interesting, uh, any comments, questions and, and what have you. Do get in touch via the usual channels. You can leave a comment if you're on YouTube. Just leave a comment under the video. You can uh, leave a message on Telegram um, and the link is down below if you use Telegram or you can email me through sacredmusingspod at gmail.com and uh, any one of those uh, will, will get to me and uh, yeah I do appreciate all of the feedback and if you'd like to support the podcast as well there's a buy me coffee link and thanks so much to everyone who has done that uh, I really do appreciate it so let's move on to the main topic now and think about western foreign policy so I've called this why western foreign policy is a disaster and uh, it's clear that foreign policy is not working well at the moment, and that's been very clear over the last few months, but you know, going back years. But something I wanted to start with, just by way of a brief disclaimer, is to say it is complicated. You know, the, the question of how we relate to other nations, how one nation relates to another, is not an easy one. For example, think about the question of how many countries there are in the world. No, no one can. We can't all agree on how many countries there are, because some countries think that other countries don't have a right to exist, and and so on and so forth. So there are a li you know lists of countries which are recognised by the United Nations or, or something like that. But you know, it, so it's complicated. It's hugely complicated, and we're not going to solve all of that in one podcast. But nonetheless, I think there are some things which can and should be said, particularly about what's happening in the, in the Western world uh, in the light of recent events. So I wanted to start by thinking about how we relate to other countries, um, different options for relating to them. So we can relate to them as friends. You know, we can be allies, we can be friends. Um, as an example, think about the so-called special relationship between the USA and Great Britain. Um, I'm not sure that the special relationship is so much of a special relationship anymore. I haven't heard people talking about it so much in recent years. Uh, but nonetheless, that's a historic example. You know, as allies, of course, the USA and Britain have got a lot of shared history and shared values. So they are in a sense, natural natural friends. Uh, relating to other nations, though, can, we can be enemies as well. Um, historically, of course, France and England um, are not the greatest of friends, um, often at war with one another. And I put that, I, I, I use that as an example, because, of course, we, we can all think of nations that where there are enemies. But, you know, I wanted to put that example because things can change. You know, so historic enemies don't necessarily mean that you know that they have to, we have to be enemies today things can change so we can be friends we can be enemies we can ignore other nations and that is an approach which some nations might take to some extent i don't really think that that's possible in the modern global world anymore to ignore what other nations are are doing in, but, but particularly thinking about trade you know we do have to trade um 
like uh, I was watching um, an interview, um, a few, I say an interview, it was a speech a few a few days ago by, um, it was, I think, Leonard Reed, but it was Milton Friedman who uh, who gave the interview, it was the ideas of Leonard Reed, but saying that no one knows how to make a pencil. And he, he held up a pencil and was talking about, well, the wood needs to come from somewhere, then the graphite in there, well, that comes from South Africa, and the paint comes from somewhere and you know so so in this world you know that 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 we rely on products from other people you know no one country has got everything um and that we rely especially when it comes to computing technology to you know the more complex technology becomes the more um you know that we need to rely on one another uh, i remember someone saying that nobody knows how to actually build an aeroplane because they're so complicated the technology you know engines are built in one country and then the electronics are made in another and you know so on and so forth and it's all assembled in one place but you know the 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 complexity required is so great that it requires nations working together so i don't think it's really ignoring other nations is a a workable strategy in today's world um, and and so then we can be friends enemies we can ignore them or we can be trading partners but then even when it comes to being a trading partner there are complexities and questions you know should we trade with anyone uh, should we sell weapons to terrorists that's a big one isn't it you know should we um, should we sell weapons when we know to nations when we know they are most likely going to end up in the hands of terrorists and uh, western nations seem to have um well not not care too much about that which is uh, which is not a good thing in my book uh, but we can be trading partners so let's think about what you do then with a hostile country what do we do with hostile countries we can do nothing we could just wait for them to attack us and that certainly is um that's a possibility you know because they might not attack they may not you know nothing might happen might happen you know think about the cold war you know you could just just do nothing um or at least you know do nothing sort of militarily to attack them um you could attack them first in order to destroy them or cripple them, so make a preemptive strike, that's a possibility. Uh, although I think, generally speaking, that is seen as uh, an unethical thing to do. You know that, um, but there might be certain specific circumstances where such a thing is uh, is a you know could be a good idea. But generally speaking, preemptive strikes, you know, um, I, I don't think are. Are right, um, and something which seems to be more um, more the case lately is doing things, you know, inverted commas, strategically. In other words, get another country to attack. Think about what's happening in Russia and Ukraine, and a lot of people have been saying that the USA have been kind of funding. The, uh, and supporting Ukraine because they want to weaken Russia. So that's the, the USA's strategic goal is actually the weakening of Russia. So it's kind of a, a proxy war. That's what people have uh, have described it as. And I think there is a lot of truth in that, that you know the USA don't want to go to war with Russia, but they're having this sort of proxy war in, in Ukraine to try and weaken Russia which again i think is a very unethical thing to do it's using another nation using another nation for your own end without considering what's best and right for them um so you know that i think that's maybe worse because it's more insidious than a preemptive strike um the the last thing that you, the way that you can relate to a hostile nation is to try and make them into friends i remember watching an interview uh, a few weeks, a few months ago, and I can't remember who it was with or, or what it was with, but the person who, who was talking was talking about Japan and China. 
and how post World War II the West had traded more with Japan and with China, and that with Japan things you know that Japan had become more westernized, more sympathetic to Western countries and more of an ally. Whereas in the case of China, a huge amount of trade had gone on with China, but you know the Chinese Communist parties were still very much in power and were still, you know, against, was still somewhat hostile to Westerners, even though there was trade going on. And I thought that was quite interesting, you know, the difference between the way that the West related to, to Japan and China and the effect uh, that it had had. But I think there has been an attempt to make Japan and China friends by trading with them, which has had limited degrees of success, shall we say. Um, the other thing, the other, the only other option to try is actually to try and convert a hostile nation to your ideology. That is to, you know, to make a foreign power into into a friend by, you know, agreeing, by getting them to agree on, you know, w with you. Um, so that seems to me those are the options for dealing with hostile countries. So what's the American way of doing things? How have the Americans been doing things over the last or 20 or so years? Let me quote you here from a piece called Rebuilding America's Defences by Project for the New American Century. This was published in September 2000 and I only found out about this document because uh, it was quoted by uh, James Corbett in the Corbett Report looking at 9-11 uh, and looking at the what, what led up to 9-11. Um, but uh, I think it's quite notable in other ways, in another way too. So let me just quote you their summary of what they were arguing. This report proceeds from the belief that America should seek to preserve and extend its position of global leadership by maintaining the preeminence of US military forces. Today, the United States has an unprecedented strategic opportunity. It faces no immediate great power challenge. It is blessed with wealthy, powerful and democratic allies in every part of the world. It is in the midst of the longest economic expansion in its history, and its political and economic principles are almost universally embraced. At no time in history has the international security order been as conducive to American interests and ideals. The challenge for the coming century is to preserve and enhance this American peace. Yet, unless the United States maintains sufficient military strength, this opportunity will be lost. And in fact, over the past decade, the failure to establish a security strategy responsive to new realities and to provide adequate resources for the full range of missions needed to exercise US global leadership has placed the American peace at growing risk. So what this document is arguing is that America needs to to be, you know, to maintain its dominant position over the well the next century, I suppose, bearing in mind this was published in 2000, is to establish military dominance. So to invest in its military capacity and make sure that it remains the dominant military force and, you know, basically throw its weight around, you know, to push people around, push other nations around and, you know, um, maintain its influence that way. Now, I should say, by the way, that this is not some minor kind of thing that that happened um, which nobody paid any attention to. But some of the people who were involved in the, the project for the New American Century went on to serve in George W. Bush's administration. So there is a link there that these ideas certainly found their way into the White House. And, uh, and I think you can see that with what happened. Another thing that happened, which the Corbett Report pointed out, is that this uh, this piece, this um, sort of little... Um, booklet talks about um, the only way, not the only way, but one way of, you know, growing military spending and what have you is a Pearl Harbor moment. 
bear in mind that this was published a year before 9-11. They were saying a Pearl Harbor moment is one way of actually accomplishing, uh, you know, that it will galvanise people into spending money on the military and, and so on. So it, it seems that this document had an impact uh, one way or the other. And it is effectively saying we need to maintain the global world order through military might and, you know, sub subject people to America and to our ideals by, you know, um, military means, by, by power. So how is that strategy working out, um, you know, 20 or so years on from when it was published? Is the USA in a stronger or weaker position than it was back then? Well, it seems to me that the USA has made more enemies than before. I don't think that the uh, the USA are in a stronger position. I mean, it's it's hard to put a number on these things, isn't it? But clearly, I think their influence in the world is waning. And you can see that. You know, they have weakened military power. Uh, they have weaker global influence. And there, there are other nations rising up. You think about BRICS. Um, you've heard about this, B-R-I-C-S. The rise of, uh, is it China, India... Um, oh, di different countries who are um, basically forming a, uh, Russia, forming a kind of trading arrangement and, you know, excluding the Western world and becoming much more, you know, dominant in their own their own way. So there is the rise of, of BRICS. And, you know, there are other things like the the dollar is potentially, you know, losing its status as the, the world's kind of global reserve currency. So that's something which which looks like it could happen as well. Um, and again, all of these things are, you know, looking into the future. But nonetheless, um, I think we need to, 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 to see which way the wind is blowing. American power is waning. And uh, it, all of this, you know, Project for the New American Century stuff hasn't seemed to actually increase American influence in the world. It actually put me in mind of that proverb. You know the proverb, uh, those who live by the sword die by the sword. That's actually taken from the Bible kind of indirectly, but it's um, it's taken from this verse from Matthew chapter 26, verse 52, um, where I think Peter, one of the disciples, cuts off the ear. They're coming to arrest Jesus, cuts off the ear of, you know, the high priest's servant. And Jesus says, Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And I think there is a lot of wisdom in that saying that those who seek, you know, military conquest for the sake of military conquest, you know, those who are the aggressors will face aggression themselves. And those who, who live by the sword by that military aggression will die by it and i think that is what we are seeing happening and i think we're seeing that happening with america and with you know because i said the the, the usa seem to be the western leaders with the re rest of the western world to a you know to a large extent so why is all of this happening i think fundamentally the reason is because the west has lost belief in its ideals, its foundations. You think about aggression and military might. Well, the, there is another word for that, it, which is bullying, isn't it? You know, bullying, that those who use force, use military force to get their own way, it's bullying. It's a power play. And if you think about, you know, obviously we, um, we're talking about countries here, but if you think about bullying... You know, I'm sure we've all got experience of it one way or the other from school or looking back to childhood. You know, those who bully are not doing it from a healthy place. Bullies are not healthy people. You know, healthy countries and healthy individuals do not bully others around. That's that's the thing. We know it comes from an unhealthy place. And the problem with this unhealthy place with the Western world, um, and especially the USA, but 
certainly applies in the UK, is that it doesn't have any confidence in its own values anymore. That's, that, that's been totally undermined. There's a complete lack of belief in Christianity. I think that is, I know we've talked talked about that on the, on this podcast, you know, um, ad nauseum, but uh, I think it is absolutely fundamental that our leaders think that Christianity is just an irrelevance now, that they may pay lips, lip service to it from time to time, uh, especially in the US, but basically our leaders are all cut from the same cloth, which is they seem to think they themselves are gods, and that Christianity is just a, you know, well, it keeps the people on side, but really, you know, we, we, we don't pay any attention whatsoever when it comes to actually, you know, um, how, we, how we do things. Our policies, our foreign policy, it has no relevance at all. And you can see that with the fact that, you know, that politicians western politicians seem to have no problem importing people from other parts of the world with different beliefs i genuinely think that in politics there is this sort of attitude that everyone in the world is basically the same that every belief system is you know every religion is well you know we all believe in the same things we all have a sacred text we all believe in peace and love and all of that good stuff so there's no problem importing the world into your country because, you know, we need cheap migrant labour and all of that stuff. Uh, and everyone's the same anyway. So, you know, we we need to, um, you know, there's no problem. There's no problem at all. Um, so I think there is, you know, mass migration is certainly a linked with this, this decline of belief in, in values, in Western values and in Christianity in particular. So what do you do then? If everyone's the same, what do you do with enemies? Well, enemies like Hamas, for example, they're just seen as irrational monsters. You know, because you think, well, why why would anyone hate us? Because we're the best. You know, well, they just hate us because we're the best. And so they're irrational. They're monsters. We can't understand them at all. You know, they are demonised. And that justifies us in going and destroying them and bombing them and treating them in a way which we would not like to be treated because they deserve it because they're irrational monsters because they hate just because they hate that's what they do um and that's that's all coming from the same root i think which is just a lack of belief in our our values as a civilization now what's what happens when you lack a belief like that when you lack a kind of a belief which holds us together core which holds us together what happens is then the only thing left are the institutions you know things like the government the state the police the military and the use of force that you know that because people don't come together naturally you have to force them to come together one way or the other i think there are real parallels here actually with the church of england uh, if you'll you'll excuse me for for drawing parallels, you might not think that's an obvious comparison to make. But what I've seen in the Church of England, although I'm not part of it anymore, what I have witnessed in the Church of England over time, and I think this has even happened, this even happened from when I was, you know, started training um, about um, twelve years ago, is that you know that that belief kind of ebbed away. Belief in God, belief in the Bible, belief in the gospel kind of ebbed away. And so what happened more and more is that bishops and those in authority, the, the, the focus of unity became much more structural, became much more institutional, because that's all you've got left. You know, you haven't got a common belief in the gospel, a common belief in God, a common belief in, in Jesus and in the Bible to bring you together. Now, that's where true Christian unity should be found in belief, not in not in kind of structures and man-made institutions. But what happened in the Church of England and what what is happening is that unity seems to be seen much more in institutional terms and that anyone who is not part you know, anyone who puts their hand up and says, actually, you know what, I, I don't believe in this. I don't believe in, 
you know, what you're doing at the moment, I can't be on board with it, will find themselves excluded one way or the other. And I feel like that's um, what happened to me. And I think anyone who rocks the boat will find themselves similarly excluded. If you put your hand up and say, no, this is not unity. This is this is just institutional man-made institutions and the use of force. Then you'll be excluded. And, you know, I think we, we saw this a little bit with cults, didn't we? You know, that when that at the end of the day, if you can't be united around the truth, then you're you're left with nothing. You're left with something hollow and you, you just have to force and coerce people. That's what's happening in a bigger, bigger scale, um, you know, on a wider scale with the West, with the Western world, I think. You know, we, we, we're hollow in terms of beliefs, we're hollow and we're just left now with manipulation, coercion and the use of force. That's all we're left with. So I mentioned that um, I've been thinking about this as a result of, you know, particularly what was happening in Israel and, and Palestine. So how does what I've been saying kind of play out play out there? Because I, I do feel like the Israel-Palestine situation is like the, the West in microcosm, really. Well, one of the, the ways is the, the origins, the modern origins of Israel, that it really came about because of the British conquest of the Ottoman Empire and the British mandate, which established a state there, uh, which Jews were able to to return to. And, um, you know, that that was, of course, post-World War One, And then after 1948, when the British mandate ended, then I think it was the Americans, really, who took that mantle up. And um, it, it, it's significant, I think, that it was the British and the Americans who decided what should happen to that land without reference to the people who lived there, um, but just going in, you know, conquering people by military might and then deciding for them uh, what should happen. And that seems to me to be basically what uh, what happened. It wasn't actually done for, you know, I mean, it was it was done, I think, to some degree out of concern for for the jews to have a homeland which is i think for some people was a a a laudable aim although as I've, I've mentioned about with christian zionism for many christian zionists it's just because they want you know that jesus to return and they think that supporting israel and you know causing the battle of armageddon will bring about the second coming it's a very, very bizarre uh, belief system. And again, it's just not being concerned for the Jews. It's actually just using them as pawns. It's strategically using them as pawns in your little game where you want Jesus to return. So, you know, we doesn't care how much death and destruction happens. Uh, we just want the Battle of Armageddon and Jesus to return because it's prophesied in the Bible, supposedly. Um, so I think that this is... Um, yeah, it, it's a very odd, odd situation there, but it, it, it came about by military might. That's the thing. And you think about the way that people think about Hamas, you know, that the way that I, I hear a lot of Western commentators, pro-Western commentators, pro-Israel commentators talk about Hamas is that, you know, it's almost like they they can't be reasoned with that the only way of doing it is to defeat them by military might to go and bomb them out of existence and um, you know it's very much that well Hamas are just just terrorists and that's all that they are that they're just full of hate and there is nothing good in them at all it's very much like what we were thinking about a couple of weeks ago about sides and um, you know uh, this is the final thing that I mentioned about westerners who take sides there are those who, you know, um, people who are pro-Palestine, so-called, who uncritically support Hamas against the West. And it seems like they are have, have an inability to distinguish between the West and violent Islamist regimes. That there's, there's no, you know, um, the only thing that matters for them is the cause of liberation of Palestine as they see it. And they don't see any of the, the problems with Hamas at all. 
which is very strange. Um, so, it, you know, but I think this comes from this lack of belief in Western foundations. Um, but then, as we saw again a couple of weeks ago, there are those who are pro-Israel who uncritically support Israel because they're Western and who don't you know, see any of the nuances or any of the the problems with the background or the problems with, you know, thinking about Israel, um, but just sort of uncritically support everything that Israel do. And again, I think that, you know, um, well, I, I said what I wanted to say really with the Taking Sides uh, podcast a couple of weeks ago. So do go back and have a look at that if you uh, you missed it. But I think all of this really stems from a lack of belief in you know the foundations of western society and in who we are in what we are and you know how we relate to others has become very um wrong because of that i think the most important thing that we need to be focusing on is hearts and minds hearts and minds that's the real battle as we were looking at last week but in the Western world, and the as we saw, this is especially the USA, they've been trying to establish domination via military might and have completely neglected the first principles of the nation, especially virtue, you know, virtue, morality, or whatever you want to call it, of doing good, uh, you know, loving your neighbour. The belief that might makes right is not the basis for world peace. If you think about it, you know, the biggest bully in the playground, that if you have a, you know, a school situation, there's a, the biggest bully in the playground who bullies everyone else, is bigger than everyone else. It might be an uneasy peace, but it's not really a recipe for peace and harmony. And actually the biggest bully in the playground is likely to get beaten up <laughs> and uh, taken down. And then things will just be unleashed. You know, so... And the biggest bully in the playground might be able to keep an uneasy peace, but it's not really going to be genuine peace. And that's what I think the Western world are trying to do, especially the USA, trying to be like the biggest bully in the playground. But as we saw last week, the battle we face is not a military one, but a battle for hearts and minds. And I include our hearts and minds in that as well as the Western world. That, you know, this is the thing, if the West... People in the Western world don't even believe in the West anymore. Then why should anyone else? You know, if we in the Western world don't believe in the West, then why should anyone else? And we are going to stir up hatred. We are going to stir up discontent if we just act like the biggest bully in the playground. Because people will know it's, it's not because we're confident, but because there's a lack of confidence. And people will see that. It seems to me that rather than trying to subdue our enemies by bombing them, we should try winning hearts and minds. And we need to start with ourselves. You know, we need to start with the Western world. We need to start with helping people to have confidence in what made Western society, particularly in Christianity and in those Christian ideas, the ideas of, you know, everyone being made in the image of God, for example, which has probably had the is the, the idea, the Christian idea, which has had the biggest impact on Western civilization. That's what we need to do to rebuild people's confidence in, in those things, in the foundations, before we engage with others. So how can we win hearts and minds? How can we win hearts and minds? And I'm particularly thinking, again, in terms of foreign policy here. I think we need to hold ourselves to high moral standards internally and externally. In other words, it is no good saying that you care about human rights if you then ditch what you say about human rights and lock everyone up in a lockdown, a Chinese-style lockdown, or go and bomb another nation with a preemptive strike and what have you if you don't engage in war justly. We need to do it all. You know, we can't just say we we care about human rights, but then not care about them when it suits us. If you value all human life, 
then people will notice and people will see there is integrity, that people are not dumb, you know, that, that people do see the way that nations act and see that they are, when they're acting consistently with their beliefs. I was reading um, an article the other day by Jay Bhattacharya, the uh, scientist, one of the scientists behind the Great Barrington Declaration. And he gave the story of how when he came over to this country, back in, uh, in he came from India. And back in India at the time, the president was Indira Gandhi. And she, I think, was convicted of uh, corruption in some ways, uh, which prevented her from keeping office. But rather than, you know, resigning and, and accepting it, she basically put her opponents in jail and, you know, doubled down. And it was, you know, the, the corruption was was incredible. And he said that he, he remembered feeling grateful that such a thing was unthinkable in the United States where he moved to. But he said, I don't think that anymore. And, you know, that if you think about people who live in corrupt regimes, that... You know, they see the corruption in their own regimes and they recognise it. But when Western governments are just as corrupt and act in just as wrong ways, then why should anyone think there's anything better about the Western world and be prepared to give them, you know, their allegiance, benefit of the doubt and, and all of those things? Um, you're not going to you're not going to help win hearts and minds by acting without integrity. Never works. Uh, the next thing is to focus on what's best for others rather than only what is best for ourselves. You know, that wanting others to flourish, sort of genuinely wanting other countries, other nations to flourish. Um, that I think, again, this comes back to having a genuine concern for other people. That if people think that you don't care about them, then you won't win them over. I think that applies to all sorts of things in life. You know, not just obviously foreign policy i think it applies to individuals too that you know you can you know what they say about winning an argument but not winning a person that if you know people can tell if you care about winning an argument or if you actually care about winning them and you know you care about them and and i i've been guilty of that many times i'm afraid is you know wanting to win an argument with actually, without actually caring for someone uh, and it can apply in country in countries too you know that if you want the best for a people, for a country, then you'll act in a certain way. And, you know, I think that people can tell when countries are acting in their own interests or whether they are actually acting in their their best interests. I know that it's, it's complicated, you know, as I said, foreign policy is complicated. But if I think we as a Western world, you know, stopped putting our own interests first and actually started thinking about what's best for other countries and helping them, then, you know, it may actually change things. Um, and, you know, the, the, the last thing is that we need to regain confidence in our religious and moral foundations. That if we don't do that, then we, you know, it's none of the, none of the rest, nothing else is worthwhile. We need to learn from the experience of Afghanistan. You know, I mean, Afghanistan was a complete disaster, wasn't it? You know, going into Afghanistan and trying to establish a Western-style democracy by force without actually changing people's hearts and minds, particularly the Taliban. And, of course, when America left, then it's just reverted back to the way it was. The Taliban have taken control again. And that's because I think, you know, that people people didn't really... They, they, they wanted some of the benefits of that Western-style democracy, but they didn't really believe in the foundations and you know it's like that's because we as the western world have forgotten that there are foundations and have forgotten that those foundations are solid and people can be persuaded to believe in them you know we tr we trust that that is possible so again you know we have to learn from the experience of afghanistan it's not about going around bullying people and trying to impose a kind of western democracy by force but actually we need to uh, allow people to you know to change their own minds and to come to it themselves rather than it being sort of imposed on them i just wanted to finish this section with 
uh, a short Bible verse. This is from Psalm 81. And I think this is quite relevant here. Um, this is what it says. Psalm 81 verses 13 to 16. If my people would only listen to me, if Israel would only follow my ways, how quickly I would subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe before him and their punishment would last forever. But you would be fed with the finest of wheat. With honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. I just think this is so significant, isn't it? If my people would only listen to me. Uh, if Israel would only follow my ways. You know, if they would turn to the Lord, they would acknowledge and worship him and follow his ways as well. Then they would find blessing from the Lord. And although that this is, you know, this applies to um, to, to Israel, I think that this is this is the case today as well. In that, if we, as the Western world, the Western world which was built on Christianity, if we turn back to God and to His ways, then that will have a far greater positive impact. That will that will, you know, accomplish far more for our security than any military might. That at the end of the day, military might is neither here nor there. What really matters is the actual foundations and being built on, well, as Jesus put it, you know, building your house on the rock, on the rock of him and what he what he taught. So that's just what I, I wanted to say to finish with. Um, do let me know what you what you think about that. Uh, I appreciate that I'm still learning really and i'm still thinking this is this podcast is just an ongoing you know um converse, say conversation ongoing learning sharing with you what i'm thinking about what i'm learning and so on and so forth and thanks for the the different thoughts and discussion um that uh, you've shared with me as well over the past few years as i've been doing this well i just wanted to finish this uh, this podcast with a short quote from the bible um, this is actually from the sermon which I'm preaching this coming Sunday, uh, which will be on Understand the Bible. It's this whole passage here from Romans chapter 8. But I just wanted to share a short paragraph from, from, this, uh, from this chapter, which I found encouraging, and I hope that you find it encouraging too. So this is Romans chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. I was really struck uh, by this quote, thinking about, you know, hope and who hopes for what they already have. And I thought, well, that's that's the case, isn't it? You know, that that's the Christian life in a nutshell. That hope, you no, know, we don't hope for what we already have. We hope for what we do not yet have, and we wait eagerly and we wait patiently for it. And, you know, I just thought hey, it's so important to have that hope in life and have that hope as part of the Christian life. You know, hope that God will change things. You know, hope that God will change things in the world, change the circumstances of our own life. You know, wherever wherever there is, there are things which are happening which are not right, personally and, and in the world. We have hope that God is the one who who brings change. And, of course, we know that there will come a day ultimately when all things will be made new but that just in the here and now there is there is um you know we need to hope and we need to wait patiently and uh i was really struck by that and humbled by that i think just that you know it's it's so easy to get impatient and it's so easy to to just lose heart but no we mustn't do either of those things we must wait patiently and hope and uh, i just wanted to share that with you so let's take a moment to, to, to pray as we finish the podcast. I know that there's been um, a lot to, to think about and I hope that it's been helpful. But let's commit it all to God and ask for his help in uh, thinking these things through. And so, Heavenly Father, we 
uh, recognize the problems as we look around at the world we recognize the, the big problems in the way that nation relates to nation that there are wars and rumors of wars and you know there's so many things are happening lord which are which are wrong and we pray that uh, as a western world the, the western world which was really built on the foundations of christianity we pray that as a, a nations that we would turn back to you seek you and your ways once again and that you would establish not an earthly kingdom but your heavenly kingdom uh, on earth as the um uh, that, that your kingdom will come that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven and we long for that day when that will be the case when the lord jesus returns and uh, when the whole earth will be full of your glory so we pray that you would give us hope help us to, to hope and to wait patiently and to trust in you and we pray all of these things in jesus's name amen well thanks so much everyone for joining me today um, don't forget to give me a like if you're on youtube don't forget to give me a rating if you're on the podcast if you can even a review that'd be really helpful and uh yeah i look forward to seeing you again soon uh, in the meantime god bless <laughs>